So I get the uh, privilege this morning of introducing our next series that we're going to be looking at as a church over the next few weeks. And so mine's like a taster. Is this, uh, am I a bit echoey? Am I, are you, am I okay from where you are? Okay. Mine is like a taster, an introduction to this next series. And I don't know if you saw when Clive and I were talking to you about how we're going to change um, Sundays, but the series is going to be called Keeping the Change. And if you want a title for my message this morning, or Keep the Change, my message is called Do You Read Me? So that's the title of what I'm going to be speaking to you about this morning. Now, who knows how many parables Jesus tells? <laughs> Don't you love it when I throw questions like that out? And actually, you can, there's probably several answers, so you can have a guess and not be horribly wrong because there are more than one answer to this. But anyone have it? Oh, Nathan Bowie. That's imp- isn't that impressive? 29 in Luke. Okay. Well, the perceived sort of general wisdom is that if you count them all, including ones that are sort of just about make it into the uh, category of parable. There are 46 in total, but thank you. There are 26 in Luke, and that's actually where I'm going to be going today. Now, if I walked out onto the street outside the church door so and stopped people on the road who were not necessarily Christians, didn't have a church background, which ones do you think they would perhaps have heard of? I can't hear you now. The, the Good Samaritan... The prodigal son. Those are exactly the two that come up as the most known parables out there. The prodigal son. No one knows what prodigal means, but they've heard of the prodigal son. And the good Samaritan, they might not know what that's about, but they've heard of that one. So those are the two most widely known parables, and I'm actually going to go to one of them today. So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 10. That gives you a clue which one I'm going for. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Is it going to come on the screen? So you can follow with me, and I'm going to be reading this out now. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here is what it says in this passage. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this, or do this habitually, one version says, and you will live. But he, this expert in the law, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jericho to Jerusalem, well, Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, or temple assistant, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed compassion and mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise, or go and constantly do the same. And I want to just pray for us now that we've read that passage that I'm going to be speaking from. So Lord, I ask you today that you will speak to our hearts, touch our lives, change us, make us more like Jesus. May we go out of here different to how we came in. And may your word really penetrate not just our ears, but our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a really familiar passage to a lot of us, and it's right up there as one of those parables that most people have heard of. But today, what I want to focus on is the interaction between Jesus and this man who is called an expert in religious law or a lawyer or um, whatever, or some people call him, some versions call him a religious scholar. He's obviously somebody who knows his Bible. He's not ignorant of the things of God. In fact, he's kind of recognized as an expert in them. And this passage tells us that he comes along and stands up and wants to test Jesus. Now, you understand when it says he wants to test Jesus, he kind of wants to catch him out. He's not really wanting Jesus to totally, sincerely, and genuinely answer his question. He wants to catch him out a little bit and see what he says. It's a perfectly reasonable question to ask Jesus, but the word used for test there, it's the same word that the Bible uses when the devil tests Jesus in the wilderness. So it's not a very friendly kind of test is what I'm trying to say. But he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What does he mean? Well, he isn't asking, how can I be sure that I will go to heaven when I die? He's not actually asking that because the Jewish people would have understood that eternal life for us starts now. Eternal life starts now. What happens when you die is just part of this eternal continuum. And that's why it matters how you live your life now and the choices that you make right now. And if we believe that Jesus died for us, and if we accept him as the Lord or the boss of our lives, then we start living that eternal best life right now. Say to the person next to you, I'm living the best life. Now, that doesn't mean your circumstances are always going to be perfect. It doesn't mean everything's going to go wonderfully all the time by your interpretation, but it means that you are now living the life that you were always meant to lead, the best life in God. So this guy comes along and asks Jesus what he must do to have this kind of life. And Jesus does what he often does. He answers him with a question. 
don't you sometimes wish you wouldn't do that? <laughs> you know, you start saying, Lord, just tell me, just tell me straight the answer to this, what I must do. But Jesus is smarter than that. And he gets right through our head and our intellect to the heart of a matter, which is our hearts. He's very good at doing that. He cuts through our thinking and goes to our hearts. So he asks this man, what does the law of Moses say? And how do you read it? In fact, he's asked two questions in there in his answer. He's asked, what does the Bible say? And how do you read it? Now, many Christian people read their Bible. And many Christian people know at least some things that the Bible says. And they could probably answer Jesus' first question, what does the Bible say? But the real killer question of the two is actually, how do you read it? How do you read it? And notice Jesus doesn't say say to him, what have you just read? He says, how do you read it, Ruth? How do you read it, Phil? How do you read it, Stu? Everyone's not looking at me now in case I say their name. (laughs) It's okay, I'm a bit in the glare, so you're probably going to be safe. But Jesus asks this guy, how do you read it? How does it affect your life? Now, do you know it is possible to read things different ways? Recently, Clive and I uh, had to go up to Berwick. Berwick is sort of right up on the coast of uh, top end of Northumberland, just before Scotland, and we had to go up there. And on the way back, I was driving, and I realized that we were going to go past the turn to Holy Island. Now, it was very dark, and it was quite cold, and it was definitely windy, but there was this fabulous big moon. And so I thought to myself, wouldn't it be romantic to be on Holy Island in the dark and the cold and the wet, <laughs> underneath this beautiful full moon. See, I, I, I just, I'm saying this because people tend to think that Clive is the one with the wacky ideas in our household, but I can come up with them too. So I have this idea that I would like to be on Holy Island, and Clive, being the obliging sort of husband that he is, said, okay, hon, you know, uh, yeah, we can do that. And so because I was going to go past the turn, I said, okay, I'm turning, and you can get on the phone and check the tide times. Because if you don't come from around here, or you've just moved to Newcastle, what you need to know is that Holy Island is a tidal island, and there is a causeway or a road to it that gets totally covered by the North Sea twice a day. So it's only safe to drive to Holy Island twice a day for a period of time. And so you have to check the tide times, and every year, hapless tourists don't do so, and, or they, you know, they chance it, and there are pictures of them in the local press standing on top of their car on the causeway, or there's a little box there with a ladder and a little kind of hut that you can climb up to watch as your car is swept away by the North Sea because you did not take good care of the tide times. So we turn around into the Holy Island Road, and it's about five miles from the A1 to Holy Island. And I think, what's the causeway itself? About two or three miles, something like that, of that, the bit that gets covered by the sea. And so we're going down this road in the dark, and the phone signal's pretty patchy. And, and Clive says, I've got it, I've got it. It's okay. It's clear till 8.30 tonight. So we are well within this. So I keep driving, and uh, 
off we go. And we get to the causeway bit. And to my slight consternation, there is water on the road. So um, Clive said, well, it's probably just the wind blowing the water across the road. So I say, okay, and I keep going. But there is definitely water on the road, you know, like water, like you can't see the road. And so Clive said, oh, well, perhaps, perhaps we'd better turn back, actually, then. Perhaps there is too much wind and the road is too wet and we should turn back. But actually, it's very hard to turn back when you're on the causeway, as you will know, because it's a single-track road. And so I think, well, I, I say, well, I, I'll get to the end of this bit, and there's that little bit to the left, those of you that know it, where there's a bit of sand, where I thought, I'll swing the car around in this bit of sand and back we will go. But it's a pond when we get there. There is no sand. <laughs> it's just water. So um, I said, well, I just have to keep going because I'm nearly there now and there's a lot of water around here. And, uh, hun, would you just check, you know, again, I don't like to doubt you, but would you just check those, that timetable that you looked at? And uh, so I keep driving and by now we're on the island, which is good news because we haven't sort of had to climb into the little safe refuge box or anything. And the, the phone signal's going in and out and then Clive says, I've got it. It's definitely supposed to be clear, but this is the timetable for 2014. (laughs) I do love him. (laughs) So, you know, straight away I'm thinking, will there be a hotel opening January on Holy Island? (laughs) Or are we going to have to spend a romantic night in the car freezing? this cold night. So uh, we eventually, by now we're at least safe on the island, and we eventually found the correct uh, year, which always helps. And uh, we found that what we had, uh, it was of course totally different to 2014, and we had crossed right at the end of when it was not supposed to be safe. So we had crossed as, you know, within like in 20 minutes of when we shouldn't have crossed, and that's why there was still water on the road, but it was going the right way for us to be able to come back. a little later on. So there you go. It's not just what you read. It's how you read it properly so that it can really affect your life in a great way. (sighs) If you feel inspired to go to Holy Island on the back of this uh, advertisement for the Northumbrian Tourist Board, the causeway is clear until 20 plus 2 this afternoon, which you will not make after the service by the time you've driven up there. So don't even think of it. But If you want to go at about half past 8 tonight, you'll be okay. (laughs) Till 2 in the morning. Anyhow, here we are. We got here. So it's not just how we read it, it's how we read it and how relevant it is to our lives. And this student knows his Bible. He answers Jesus. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is that a good answer? Yeah, it's a pretty good answer. He combines two scriptures from the Bible, and I could ask you again and put you on the spot and say, do you know where they came from? But I will rescue you and tell you that he tells Jesus some answers from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and he combines them together in a way that we've seen Jesus do with other people in the Gospels when he's answered their questions. Perhaps Jesus has been following this guy around and is familiar with his teaching because he certainly knows his stuff. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Now, straight away, Jesus is anchoring the man's reply in an action. Do this and you will live. It's not enough just to know it and say it. He's got to do it. And it's the same for us. It's not 
how much we read the Bible, it's how much we do the Bible. And you would think that this guy would have sat back at this point and sort of been grateful that he had got off fairly lightly in a confrontation with Jesus and, and nothing sort of too drastic had happened. But no, he asks another question. There are people like that in life, aren't there? There are some in my family. But I'm not going to say anything about that. But anyhow, he asks another question. He's shown us that he knows the scripture, but there is a problem with how he is reading it because he asks and who is my neighbor? Why do you think he asked that? He was cocky, okay. <laughs> His neighbor was a cow or a sheep, anything like that. He thinks he is going to be able to kind of not make this apply to him. I would suggest that he's asking Jesus for definition so that he can limit his response. He's asking Jesus, who is my neighbor, so that he can kind of narrow it right down and tick the box. And he really is hoping Jesus will say, well, it's the person who lives either side of you is your neighbor. And then he can say, well, I say hello to them, and sometimes I take their dustbin out, and Sometimes I lend them a bowl of sugar. That's what they do up north, isn't it? But I don't know anyone else ever has asked me for a bowl of sugar. But they might say, can you jumpstart my car? We seem to get that a lot in Grange Road. But anyway, whatever it is, he is wanting to tick the box. Yes, I do these things for my neighbors right next to me. And that is the limit of my obligation. By this narrow definition, I can read this and analyze it and make it less personal, less about how I have to respond, and more about just a factual definition. So Jesus is not going to give him the ammunition to narrow and restrict his response to God. Of course, we never try to do that in what we read in the Bible. But I think we have to be a little bit aware of our fallen nature which will always push us to narrow down God's word and make it less expansive. Let me give you an example. I was thinking of this when I was trying to think of a way to sort of express it, and this passage came to my mind. Um, I picked upon tithing, for example. Now, most of you in this room, I'm speaking to a church here that is on board with me, so I don't have to worry so much about this, but most Christians here would know the passages about Abraham, who gives his tithe to the priestly figure of Melchizedek. And they would know the passages in Malachi about tithing. I'm guessing most of you could tell me that Malachi says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse and you will be blessed. And it's the only time that we're told that we can test uh, God and that we should give him the first tenth of our income and see how he will bless us. But I've met people who try and narrow that down by how they read it. So they say, well, that was the Old Testament. And if we were supposed to tithe, it would be much more obvious in the teachings of Paul, for example. And Paul doesn't really mention it so specifically. Well, Jesus did. Did you know that? Jesus mentions it. So I think it's safe to assume Paul would have started from there. Now, um, I need someone to be... Um, I'm looking, but I think Paul Corelius is in the children's work. What am I going to do? I need someone to come and help me. John is looking at me. John will do. Come on, John. Or Adam. Either of you would be perfect. Can I have that little um, 
pots under there. Okay. Now, who knows what Jesus says about tithing? You can sit there, actually, on the edge. Yeah, okay, the table would be good. Who knows what Jesus says about tithing? You should do it. Don't neglect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where does it say that? Anyone know? If you had to help someone out here, where would you be looking in your Bible? The what? The search facility. The search facility. <laughs> oh, that's such a blessing, isn't it? Always. Okay, well, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, that's quite easy to remember, so we can remember it now. You're never going to forget this. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, who are like this guy who's the expert in religious law, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of all your spices. Mint, dill, and... Now, John, just stand here, and I want you to give me the tenth, and you can keep the ninth. Get counting. Right. All, of it. <coughs> All of it. Just, just we'll let him get on with that, okay? And Jesus says, you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Keep going. These guys counted it, you know, they counted it. Okay, that's what you're supposed to be doing. (laughs) And Jesus said to these Pharisees, you have neglected the more important matters of the Lord, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You should do both. And the, the Pharisees were tithing on their herbs. Keep going. He's not doing this right, is he? I'm approximating. Ready. One. And now I want nine in that one. Okay. <laughs> okay. He, yeah, keep going. One. Nine. <laughs> you should have left them in the bag. You should have left them in the bag. So these guys were tithing on the herbs and counting them. Well, honestly... What a waste of time. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I'll let you sit down. I will, I will let him sit down in a minute. But what a waste of time. Come on, look, just, just throw in a handful, all right? Okay, just, you can go. All right, just throw in the handful. If you come for a curry at my house, it has been untouched by human hands. Our pastor used to say to us, if your gross income each month, and get your thinking heads on, I'm looking at Caroline, who might be able to compute this rapidly. Supposing your gross income was £1,266.70, how much would your tithe be? Anyone else can contribute? £126.67. And he used... And or whatever. And he used to say, please, do not let me see you write a check £126.67. What a waste of time! <laughs> and Byro, I mean, we pay by direct debit now, don't we? But we used to write checks in those days. You know, throw in a handful. Don't be like the Pharisees. Make it 130 or even 150 if you like. But don't sit there doing the pennies and... No, don't be like that. Be expansive with what Jesus asks us to do. Be 
big-hearted. Don't neglect to justice and mercy and faithfulness and to be a good neighbor, but don't get all nitty-picky-picky about all the little nitty-picky things. Be big-hearted. Is that right? Amen. God will bless you if you are expansive with what he says to you. Throw it in. Why try to narrow things down and restrict things? Because our God is expansive. And we can read the Bible in a nitpicky way, just like the Pharisees did. Let's not be like that. We're made in his image. You're made in God's image. You're made to be expansive and bold and big gestured. So how does Jesus answer the guy? Who is my neighbor? He tells a story. He's good at that too. You've got to apply it and make it real to you. He tells a story, the story of the Good Samaritan. Now you understand it wasn't, it didn't have that title when he told it. We know it's the story of the Good Samaritan because it says that in our Bible, but it didn't have that title when he told it. So we read about how a Jewish man is ambushed on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's robbed, stripped, beaten, and left as though he was dead. It's a pretty severe attack. It would make the headlines even today, wouldn't it? I think something like that. And this is an isolated road, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It like goes through um, some, there's mountains either side and it's pretty out of the way and deserted. If you like to travel, save up your money and go to Israel. If you've never had the chance to go, that should be top of your places you would love to go. We went a few years ago and it brought the Bible to life for me and we drove along the Jericho Road in a coach with some air conditioning, and it was, uh, it was still pretty deserted and isolated, and these guys were on foot and on donkeys. And so there's, it, there's not lots of people around to help this guy, in other words. It's pretty deserted. And the first two who come along, you would expect they would have helped him. You would have expected that these two religious people, a priest and a temple assistant, would have done something to help. But they both look at the guy and deliberately cross the road and walk past. And then the Samaritan comes along, and he sees this guy just the same as the others. He sees the same situation, but his response is one of compassion. And he goes way beyond a little bit of first aid and a little bit of are you okay and a a plaster and so on. He totally abandons his own plans for the day, and he sees it right through. He cleans and bandages the guy's wounds. He lifts him onto his donkey, and he has to walk He puts himself at risk of attack stopping there to help this guy when there are bandits in this deserted place in the hills either side. And he walks this guy to an inn where he probably has to persuade the innkeeper to take a Samaritan in. And he looks after him. He pays up front and says, I'll pay any other cost. Now, in fact, the guy listening, this this sort of religious scholar that asks Jesus the question, would have been quite shocked by this because Samaritans were like the enemies of the Jews. It says he was a despised Samaritan to the Jewish people. So he's not even helping one of his uh, uh, own. He's helping someone who would have hated him, who would have not liked him at all. And when Jesus says, who would you say was a neighbor to this man, the guy can hardly bear to even say it was the Samaritan. He can't even put Samaritan on his lips. He says, Can you see what Jesus has done here? The man is seeking to restrict what he has to do 
And Jesus is being expansive. The man is saying, what is the minimum I'll have to do to love my neighbor as myself? And Jesus is far more interested in seeing if this man is prepared himself to be a neighbor to people. Jesus is more interested in seeing if he, this expert, is prepared to show the compassion and mercy of God to people who need it. And the expert wants a definition, who is my neighbor? Jesus wants some participation. Will you be a neighbor? That kind of neighbor, not this kind of neighbor. That kind of neighbor. And when this guy reluctantly says, well, well, Samaritan, you know, this guy was the guy who behaved in a neighborly fashion, Jesus says, again, now go and do the same. It's all about his response, not his understanding. His understanding has to translate into a response. It's not just what we read in the Bible. It's how we read it. What are we going to do with what we read? How are we going to live it? Today's an anniversary, actually. Did you know it's the anniversary of something that happened back in 2009? On January the 15th, 2009, something quite uh, spectacular happened. Clive, you're not allowed to answer because you probably know. Anybody know what happened on January the 15th, 2009? You might get a prize if you know. President Obama? No. Well, he probably was the president. (laughs) No, 2009. Yes! Well done, that man. Do you want to say it a bit louder so people hear you? You remember that plane that had taken off in New York and the geese had gone into the engines and knocked them both out and the guy landed the plane on the river, on the River Hudson, because he couldn't get back safely to an air an airfield, and everybody, all 155 crew and passengers were saved, which is unprecedented in civil aviation history, that everybody in a water landing has survived. It was an amazing, amazing thing. And if you haven't watched the film, it's called Sully, and it was in the cinemas before Christmas, and it's not quite out on DVD yet, but for a small fee, I will tell you how to hack Richard's American Apple (laughs) account, (laughs) which is what I did. We watched the movie, and uh, it's a good movie. But if you've read the story or you've watched the movie, you know, people don't always respond how you expect them to. And some of these people, and most of them, were just really thankful that they, they thought they were going to die. You can imagine. If you watch the film, the, the air stewardess is yelling, Brace, brace, heads down, heads down, brace, brace. They do this sort of, it's like a chant. And everybody thought they were, that was their last day on this earth. And in fact, the people that got injured, just telling you this, should you ever find yourself in this position, the people who got injured were the ones who looked up to see what was going on and, and had head injuries at the point of impact if they had done what they had been told. Most of them would have walked off the plane without even a finger injured. And so these people were, uh, got their lives back when they thought they were going to die. And most of them were sincerely extremely grateful. But there were a few who decided that the airline did not compensate them adequately enough for this traumatic experience Uh, Because actually airlines are not obliged to uh, compensate you if they're not at fault in any way. 
and they were not at fault in any way. <laughs> and so they were not obliged to compensate anybody beyond the usual luggage allowance. And so there were some people who decided they would think about suing the airline for lack of compensation. People do not always react to things. The same situation, different people react to it differently. Uh, are you with me? And I'm saying we can do that with the Bible. The same people can read the same passage and yet respond differently. And I want to say we need to respond with a heart that God wants us to respond with. We need to respond with this big, expansive heart to the Bible and not this sort of little nitty-picky kind of way that we read about earlier. Let's not be like that with God. Some Christians have this crazy idea that God exists just to bless us or bless our ideas or bless our plans in life, bless our money. And of course, that's all down to how you read it because God's first desire is to get you part of his plan. He wants you to be part of his big plan. And we just think, God, will you come and be part of my plan, please? But he wants you to be on his page. God has put everything you need for eternal life, the best life now, in this book for you to read. Please don't come to me ever and say this book does not work. Please don't, because I will say to you, it's not what you read, it's how you read it. It's how you read it, it's how you let it touch your life and affect the way you live. In Revelation 10, there is a passage where John, the Apostle John, he's getting this amazing vision of heaven and so on. And in chapter 10, he sees this mighty angel who is holding a scroll. And John is about to write down what the angel is telling him. He gets his pen ready, and then he hears a voice from heaven saying, don't write it down. And in verse 9, the angel says to him, don't write it down. Eat it. I'm just having a little look. Anyone eating their phone right now or their notebook? (laughs) Now, look, this isn't saying we shouldn't take notes. I love to take notes. Notes help me to concentrate. I can go back over the scripture afterwards. Whatever. Please do not stop taking notes. It's a great thing to do. But it's no point taking notes if you don't eat it as well. David says in the Psalms, God's words are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And again, we get this picture of eating them. And this is very interesting. Do you know whether you choose to eat for your lunch today a salad or a Big Mac, whichever way you go, or the roast dinner or whatever, what you eat is going to become a part of you. It's going to be metabolized by your body. And it's going to sort of end up on your fingernail or something. I don't know. I'm joking. But it's going to become part of you. What you eat becomes part of who you are. And it actually takes 24 to 72 hours to fully digest the food that you eat. And if you want to know how I know that, I was a nurse, and I can tell you afterward exactly how you can test me out on that, but I'm not going to say it on tape. (laughs) But what we eat becomes part of us. And in the same way, God intends for us to metabolize his word, to eat it, and for it to become part of us. And we can't survive by just eating once a week. And in the same way that food goes into our body and it carries on being digested, that's how the word of God needs to be for us. We need to carry on 
chewing it over and digesting it and thinking about it and letting it work in our lives. Now, it also says in Revelation 10, verse 9, if anyone actually turns to that passage and got ahead of me on this, John is told to eat it, but the angel says to him, it will be sweet in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So here's a thought. If you never, ever get indigestion after reading your Bible, maybe you need to think about how you read it. Are you with me? It's, it's gone ever so quiet. Do you, know, do you hear what I'm saying? The Bible is supposed to be a challenge to us. It's great. It's wonderful. It's full of the most amazing promises and brilliant stories and accounts and wonderful counsel for our lives and wisdom and inspiration and motivation, but it's a challenge. Sometimes it feels sour in your stomach and gives you indigestion because you've got to change. If you really, really read it, you have to change. And that's a challenge to us. That's out here and we try and keep it so it doesn't give us indigestion. I was sharing with my team the other day for example, just a little passage. And uh, I was in the era, I grew up in the era where you used to have very nice little Bible verses put on pretty posters. Does anyone else know that? You know, we don't tend to do it so much here. But if you go to America now, into a Christian bookstore in America, they are still full of pictures of pretty little kittens. And then it will say, I will never leave you or forsake you or something on it, you know? Or there'll be a beautiful rose and it will say something else suitably uplifting. Well, here's a verse that uh, is quite encouraging. And uh, it says in Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's a good verse, isn't it? It's a good one to know in your head when you're sitting waiting for your exam or your driving test or, or the dentist or, I don't know, a job interview. God has not given me a spirit of fear. It's a good, encouraging verse. It's probably got a fluffy rabbit behind that one, I should think, at least, on the poster. But what does it say either side of that? Do you know? says he's given us a spirit of power and love and sound mind. What does it say either side of that? I'm going to tell you. I will put you out of your misery. And this is just an example that I'm wanting to bring to you before I finish. But it actually, if you read that passage when you go home today in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says just before that, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given you a spirit of fear, or timidity, but power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. God has not given you a spirit of fear so that you can do the work of the ministry. That's what it actually says. It's nothing to do with the dentist or the exam. And I probably have prayed it just the same as you, and it's a great thing to pray. But it's actually saying God will make you bold as you develop your ministry, as you share the life of God with other people, as you build up disciples, as you call people into the kingdom of God and drag them into knowing Jesus and then strengthen them and build them up. God will give you the boldness to do that. That's what it's saying. Amen. Thank you. Do say amen. Okay, come on. That's good, isn't it? 
See, every one of you has got a ministry. Nobody is left out. You have all got a ministry. You have all got a part to play in growing the kingdom of God and in spreading the good news about Jesus. And this verse, God has not given you a spirit of fear, is in connection with you doing that. Winning, forming, making disciples, growing your ministry. How do you read it? How's your belly doing? So, here's my question. I'm coming to the end. And uh, really, I want to ask you, will you eat this book this year? Right at the start of the year, will you eat this book? Will you respond to the same challenge as Jesus gave, that so-called expert in the law What does it say? How will you read it? Will you read it? Not wacky. Don't be wacky, but ask the Holy Spirit to make it real to you and affect your life day by day. Every day, eat this and ask the Holy Spirit to change you as a result of what you've read. And if we do that, it will change us. It will change our lives. And we're going to help you, as Clive said earlier on, with a six-week devotional that you can follow through and read. And we're going to have a theme of change. And uh, don't try to go to Holy Island before 10 to 9 tonight. And I want to pray for you. Can I pray for you? Please join me. If Don't stand unless you want to. But if you want a fresh desire to read the Bible this year, to read it and eat it, to be expansive in your response to God then do stand, and I would like to pray for you. And this is a solemn moment, but it's a joyful moment as well, okay? Lord Jesus. Father, I ask you very simply to look upon us all, to look upon us as we stand before you in response to you today. And Lord, I ask you that you would give every one of us who's responding to you a fresh desire for your precious word, your Bible, the scriptures that you've given us. Give us a fresh hunger to read this beautiful book. May it be sweet in our mouths like honey to taste, but may it do its work in our lives, Lord. We pray that we would change this year. We pray that we would read it and do it. We pray that you would help us in how we read it by your spirit, that it would be life to our bodies, that it would become part of us, that we would digest it, and that it would become part of who we are. In Jesus' name, will you give us that fresh desire and the fresh ability and strength Lord, call us away from other things. Nudge us by your spirit. Call us away into your word this year, I pray. And may we have the most fantastic adventure in you and be changed to be more like Jesus in every way we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.